Welcome to the Reparadigmed Podcast. Today we're excited to have Dr. John Walton with us, Old Testament scholar and emeritus professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. John, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. John is a very prolific author. Uh, You may have seen the Lost World series. How how many books are in that series currently? Uh, There are six published. Okay. Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, and more recently, Wisdom for Faithful Reading, Principles and Practices for Old Testament Interpretation. And if you've been listening to our podcast so far, you've been listening to Nick and me talk about the need to study the Bible well. In order to get to authorial intent, we need to be willing to study the Bible in context. And we've gone through this book recently, and we've realized that we probably could have summed up a lot of this first series by saying, please just go read this book. Uh, It's kind of on the nose for the series we're doing here. So thank you so much for putting this together. It was fun doing it. Yeah, one more one more note on that. When I initially uh, reached out to you about doing this, I reached out about talking uh, talking about ancient Near Eastern thought in the Old Testament because I'd worked through that book a couple times and it was pretty influential and pretty helpful. Then you responded, "Hey, I've got this new book, Wisdom for Faithful Reading," and so it was actually after we had produced a lot of what what now has become our hermeneutics content for that for that podcast series. It was almost after we produced all that content that we then read your uh, Wisdom for Faithful Reading book. And I was probably laughing out loud a couple of times because I was like, either we're way more influenced by John Walton than we thought, or he listened to our podcast. I'm just kidding. Obviously, it wasn't the latter, but there was quite a bit of overlap. And so we found it helpful. And we definitely encourage anyone to take a look at that book. I'm glad to hear there was overlap. That might mean we're heading in a productive direction. Sure. Yeah. So... You're well known as kind of the Old Testament context guy. How did you get started studying Old Testament context? Ah, that's a little bit of a long story, but let me try to give it briefly. I was raised in a a Christian home, very much committed to the Bible and to learning the Bible. So I learned the content of the Bible very young. Um, And by content, I mean, you know, the, the basic memory verses as well as all the trivia. And of course, in the Old Testament, there's plenty of trivia. So that was stuff that, you know, I mastered that, that um, content uh, early on. But we all know that biblical literacy uh, at that level is not the same thing as understanding really what to do with the Bible. And so it was a much longer journey to start to work out uh, a, a hermeneutic that I felt I could use consistently, a methodology that had controls. And part of that, uh, by the time I hit graduate work, uh, part of that was certainly understanding the context, which included the cultural context. I mean, most people know that linguistic context, historical context, uh, literary context are important things. But lots of people don't think as much about the cultural context. And so that was in my graduate work that I began to see the significance of that and began exploring it more deeply, simply because I said this is an important element to bring in if we're going to really have confidence in our interpretations. Yeah. You look at three essential commitments for faithful reading uh, in this new book. Uh, we want to talk through these a little bit. The, the first essential commitment is accountability. So you talk about how we're accountable to the author's authorial intent. Can you discuss why that's so important? Well, I think it's important because our, our belief is, mine and I think most people in the church, their belief is that God has inspired scripture. 
and that he did so using human instruments. And we call them the authors, but it includes the editors and compilers and all of the processes, the human processes that led to the Bibles that we hold in our hands today. And so to that extent, God chose to communicate it through these human instruments. And we assume he did so effectively and that they did so effectively. They communicated effectively. And if that's true, if we want to get God's message, God's authority, we have to go through them. To me, it's a fairly simple equation. Uh, He gave it through them. We have to go through them. And that's how we reach some assurance, some confidence that we're getting to the message that God put there. If we assume that somehow there are messages that the authors did not understand and did not communicate, um, and that we can somehow get around them and go straight to God, we have to ask a very serious question. What would give us confidence that we were getting God's message? What evidence could we possibly give uh, that would substantiate it? And so it seems to me that any other pathway is just full of of dangers and risks uh, because we just we're guessing when somebody says the spirit told me that's the answer that's the interpretation that's a conversation ender there's nothing more you can say Uh, you can't question it um, and and yet you also can't confirm it so to me that accountability is part and parcel with the question of authority if it has authority then we have to be accountable to it we're accountable to god but it goes beyond that because God worked through these human instruments. And and that question of authority, I was going to bring this up, so I'm glad you went there with, with this word that you use, accountability. The, the question of authority is really important because we all affirm in our evangelical doctrinal statements that the Bible is authoritative. But if t- to your point, if we're not reading it correctly, if we're not reading it consistently trying to submit to the intention of the author, editor, compiler, in his or her original context, then what do we have but maybe our own presuppositions that we take into the text, maybe our own desires that we take into the text. And if if our hermeneutics are so so willing to change, then how do we have any degree of confidence that we're submitting to God's authority? Mm-hmm. And so that I, I think that's so important. And that's what I really appreciate about your work is calling us all back to a very consistent, rigorous hermeneutic, which maybe it's not always possible to get to the authorial intent, but we have to try. Like, that's the goal, right? If you accept the concept of biblical authority, um, then somehow you have to tie to what's there. If you don't, then it's just your own authority and your own imagination. Too often, people who take their faith seriously, take the Bible seriously, basically only springboard off the Bible instead of actually being tethered to what it is that the text is saying. Well, that leads us into this second essential commitment here, consistency. I'm going to read a quote out of your book because I found this very memorable. We must consistently and mercilessly engage in purging our interpretation of anything that cannot be defended as part of the author's intention. Um, that's fairly strong language to use for how we should approach ideas that can't be defended well. I guess, what do you mean by this? Well, as I understand it, the strongest interpretation is the one that has the strongest evidence. And it's not the one that has the person who you consider the most spiritual. Um, It's not the one who has the longest devotional times. It's not the one who's done the most fasting. 
the strongest interpretation is based on the strongest evidence. And that means that, again, I use the word merciless. Uh, we, we have to apply these concepts mercilessly if, if the authority of Scripture is valuable to us. Because if you're not consistent, then it puts you in a very awkward position when you talk to you know, somebody who you'd say, oh, they're in a cult. And they say that you interpret the Bible this way. How can you tell them they're wrong? Mm-hmm. You can only tell them they're wrong by pulling out methodology. Mm-hmm. And you can't pull out methodology if you aren't consistently applying it yourself. So it seems to me that we are very um, uh, lax on ourselves, uh, especially when we're coming to conclusions that have a long traditional history behind them. Right. Uh, we just let them go without scrutiny. and. Yeah. Uh, that puts us in a very awkward position if we want to try to argue a particular position against someone else that we believe is not only maybe wrong, but heretical. How can you do that without consistent methodology? It's awfully frustrating, too, because it's it's patently the case that an interpretation that I have based on what I think the Spirit's leading me to in that moment when I opened up the Bible and stuck my thumb in there that could be you know, inconsistent with the person next to me who did the same thing that morning and landed on the same passage. And oftentimes it is. It's very frustrating entering those conversations and trying to figure out, well, what is, well, what is it? Is it what God was telling you out of that passage? Or is it what God was telling me out of that passage? Because we both got different conclusions here. And again, that's the question of authority. Yes. Where is yeah. the authority of the text? Yeah. So the third essential commitment here is controls. The idea that we need to be willing to accept controls. In the book here, you you look at some places throughout church history where controls were not accepted um, and churches went really bad directions. Uh, can you talk a little bit to the need for controls and what happens if we don't accept controls? Sure. If we don't rein ourselves in, it gives us the freedom to say whatever we want. And it might sound godly and spiritual. It might be inspirational and motivate people. Oh, well and good. But if you don't have controls, you can't claim it's what the Bible is teaching. And we don't, we don't want just our, our best inspirational speakers giving motivational talks. We mm. want the Bible, as, as good as those other things might be. So we have to insert controls, and controls are going to be painful for us. Mm. I remember well the pastor I was talking to, and he was starting to get the, the gist of this uh, kind of rigorous hermeneutic. He would say, man, you're taking away all my best sermons. <laughs> I practically cried because that suggests that his best sermons had no foundation in the text. And so I'm afraid that we've often settled for second best. It's great to hear inspirational talks. They do motivate us. They do help us to grow spiritually. But that's no excuse. I'm sorry. It's no um, exception, no substitute for what the Bible itself has to teach us. And that's a distinction that we don't make often enough. We, we talked about this a little bit in our podcast. We, we talked about this a little bit, the idea of, uh, of a rule of faith, the canon of scriptures, you know, um, this 66 books or whatever, as we have it in the Protestant, in the Protestant version. We don't really have a rule of faith if all we're giving our people is inspirational, motivational speeches that take the text and start with the text, maybe, and then just kind of spin into whatever I was thinking that day. 
where's the authority to your point? Where's the rule of faith that grounds us at all times? It's maybe great to have inspirational, you know, speeches on the on the side or in some context, but at some point we need to come back to something that's consistent that grounds our faith, one would think, not something that can just be used for whatever we want to to use it for. Often in history, I think that the rule of faith has been basically is what I'm teaching uh, uh, does it fit in? Does it correspond with our traditional theological consensus? Yeah, and yeah. And there you have it. That's that's all we need. Or, or maybe um, is 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 what I'm teaching something that fits with our standard concept of moral ethical behavior? Mm-hmm. Those are different criteria. Those mm-hmm. weren't criteria of what does the author intend? Because yeah. remember that through much of, much of church history, even the scholars had no hope of getting that. Hebrew was lost to Christianity for, you know, until you almost get to the Reformation. Mm. And the ancient Near East was lost uh, even as early as the New Testament period and only recovered in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, So they didn't have access to things that could have helped them to find the author's intentions. And that's not what they were actually trying to do. But as a result, we know the result in church history. Uh, the, there are many controversies, uh, and they they were based on sometimes very deeply flawed readings, because mm. there was no consistency or controls uh, that tied to the author's intentions. Do you have an example of that? Well, I think that lots of the discussions uh, that centered around some of the heresies of the ancient world, um, I mean, we have to recognize that the early Christian writers were all writing to somebody. They were having a conversation, um, and whether it was the Manichaeans or the, the uh, Gnostics or whoever it might have been, they were having conversations in their own world uh, with their own issues that were involved. But we also know that some of the worst Christian movements of world history, such as the Crusades or the Inquisition or Manifest Destiny or Antebellum Slavery, or all of those were fueled by people who used the Bible to support what they were doing. Yeah. Mm. And people could, on, a, on the other side of the argument, could say, no, 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 these passages are more important. But there really wasn't the kind of thing where they would say, no, your interpretation isn't acceptable because it's clear that's not what the author intended to mm. say. Yeah. They couldn't make those arguments very easily. And actually, it seems to me, didn't try very often. I might be sure. wrong on that. There might be church historians that would inform me on that and take me sure. there. But to, but to your point, I, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say, even if the, let's let's just say people throughout most of church history, or big swaths of it at least, it's it's not an exaggeration to say that even if they did want to get to the author's intent, they, they weren't in a great position to do so. Unless they're very early on in the apostolic tradition or... Honestly, again, very recently, where we have discovered again the ancient Near East, we've discovered again um, even Second Temple Judaism, which mm-hmm. one would think would lead, you know, lend a lot of insights into understanding what's going on in Paul's language and Jesus's language, and also his his actions as well. And of course, that's the point that Tom Wright makes when he's talking about the the cultural background of the New Testament and Hellenistic Judaism, Second Temple period. Uh, that you have to know what's going on there. 
And that's true all the way up through church history. You have to know what's going on in the period when each of the uh, authors are writing. Hmm. Yeah. You talked a little bit about some of these kind of more recent discoveries that have helped us recover some of this ancient Near Eastern context, specifically for looking at the Bible. Uh, I was hoping we could take a look at a couple examples here, maybe for people who have not encountered this type of work and maybe don't quite understand how this ancient Near Eastern context helps us to understand the Bible. I guess, do you have any specific examples you like to go to when you're helping to show people why this, this work matters? Well, I think one of the things that's very difficult to get across is that this is not a case of this piece of literature or that piece of literature. Certainly, there are some that have more currency and more impact uh, to conversation than others. You know, people often mention the Gilgamesh epic or the Babylonian creation epic. Um, and certainly those are important and meaningful pieces. But if somebody just picks up the Babylonian creation epic and reads it, they'll say, what's he crazy? This is nothing like Genesis at all. You know, and they'll see the mythology and they'll see um, just all kinds of things that make no sense at all. They would see nothing. And even with the Gilgamesh epic, they, they would often look at that and say, I, I just don't see where that has a whole lot to do with the Old Testament. Um, so it's not so much individual pieces of literature. It's the aggregate of what all of those pieces of literature, and of course, there are, there are thousands of them, um, but yeah. the aggregate of what all those pieces of literature help us to understand about the ancient world. Um, this is what I call the cognitive environment. Some people yeah. might just call it the worldview. Uh, some people would call it the conceptual world, different terms, uh, but trying to, to get behind the literature to say, how does that literature help us to understand how people thought in the ancient world? And that's why I titled my book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the mm -hmm. Old Testament, mm -hmm. uh, because that's what we're trying to get at. And so any given piece of literature, any given archive of literature um, only gives us windows into that ancient world. And so in that sense, it's, it's not so easy to talk about individual pieces that, oh, if you go and read this, you'll see exactly how, how this whole thing works. It sure. really doesn't, doesn't come across that clearly to someone who's just trying to uh, get an introduction to it. Could we maybe talk a little bit about kind of one of these big worldview differences? Um, Something that you notice in the aggregate when yeah. you're... Sure. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the ones that I'd love to chat a little bit about is, is the idea that we as, you know, in kind of our modern cultures are much more focused on material, um, kind of a scientific type worldview. Whereas in an ancient Near Eastern culture, they would have been more focused on kind of order and function. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that world difference? Yeah. And then... And that's really a big one. It has to do with how we read Genesis 1. Uh, for example. I mean, it's one thing to say God created. We all believe that. Not yeah. everybody does, but we all believe that. We, we you know, have a biblical faith and we believe God created. But it's a little more difficult to go back and ask the question, okay, so what do we think creation entails? And is that the same thing that they thought creation entails? In fact, if creation means to bring something into existence, you even, frustratingly, have to ask the question, what does it mean to exist? Sure. And people at this point get very frustrated with me, and sometimes they just turn off and say, <laughs> okay, that's... Uh, but we, we have to ask these things. This was, for Israel, this was a text that talked about 
how things came to exist. But if they have a different arrangement, different understanding, different different sense of what existence is, then that becomes a very different kind of act. Hmm. And so that's a, a great example. Um, again, I've tried to make the case that for Israel, um, something exists when it's got a role and a purpose in an ordered system. Hmm. That ordering is the principal act of creation. And I think I can demonstrate that in the Bible and in the rest of the ancient world. And uh, it's not that I see it in the rest of the ancient world and impose it on the Bible. It's that I see it in the Bible and then say, oh, and look, the Egyptians thought this way too, and the Babylonians thought this way too, which is no surprise that Israel is thinking in the context of their world. God mm -hmm. might have wanted to tell them that he's the creator, not some Egyptian or Babylonian God, but he didn't necessarily care if they thought of creation as ordering as opposed to material manufacturing. Mm -hmm. that's He doesn't try to change those kinds of things. He doesn't change how they think about cosmic geography. They thought that the world was flat, that there was a solid sky. Clearly, the, yeah, right it, within the text itself. And they clearly yeah. didn't. And, and God doesn't change it. Right. They were thinking like the rest of their world. So one of the statements I make often is that Israel thought a lot more like a Babylonian than they did like us. And many of the things that they had in common with the Babylonians or the Egyptians, God wasn't trying to change. There were certain things he was trying to change. So again, someone might push back and just say, okay, so Dr. Walton, that's all interesting. But again, why do we need to know, why do we need to care how the Babylonians thought about creation or about bara to create or whatever? Why, why, why should we care about that? And your answer is because as we understand the cognitive environment of these ancient Near Eastern people groups, like the Babylonians, for example, maybe Egyptians as well, as we understand them better, that could lend insight into the likely cognitive environment of the biblical author. Right. We have to attach Israelite thinking to something. Are, are we, we going, going to attach to, it to our thinking? Are we going or to attach to, it to us mm -hmm. or to people that were around them? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's an important question to ask. Why should we think? that an Israelite, an ancient Israelite, thought the same way we do about mm. the world. Again, there are plenty of examples. You know, we, we talk about um, the uh, physiology. You know, they, in the ancient world, they believed that all of the cognitive processes that we attach to the brain uh, took place in the various internal organs, kidney, liver, heart, stomach, intestines, and that was their understanding of physiology. And so they talk about believing with your heart or loving with your heart. And that wasn't just a metaphor. Mm. <laughs> they, they thought that's where those processes took place. In contrast, they had no concept whatsoever of what the brain was for. The, mm. it, it, they attached no significance to it. We don't even know the Hebrew word for brain. The, the word they translate mm. mind uh, is the word for kidneys, not for brain. <laughs> and right. um, so. They had no idea of the physiology of the brain. And in that sense, again, God doesn't change that. He doesn't come in and give them a whole revised physiology. And mm. So we have to understand that God is, God is um, interacting with them in their culture, in their world, in their language. And that's all part of uh, what goes into the author's communication. And we have to be able to spot those things. Sure. In addition to kind of the big worldview changes, um, you've also pointed out 
some of the ways that there are specific symbolisms that are common across um, a lot of the ancient Near East. And some of these are kind of symbolisms that we see show up in the, in the creation story in Genesis, um, specifically thinking about the idea of rivers fro- flowing from a place or, or the, the significance of trees. Um, could you talk a little bit about this kind of the way we see these items that have common shared symbolism across all these different cultures? And we sh- would expect that this is the same kind of symbolism that the biblical authors would anticipate to use. Yeah. And as like a modern reader, I, I actually don't pick anything, any of those things up as very significant. I just see, okay, there's a river. Okay. There's trees. I attach no significance. So what maybe are some of those significances is that an ancient person might see in these texts? Sure. Well, the garden parks of the ancient world were well known and they weren't individual private property. Hmm. They, they were garden parks connected to either temples or palaces. Because those are the only places they could afford them. Sure. Um, <laughs> With the tithe yeah. money, right? <laughs> yeah. And the temples, and this is true all across the ancient world, and it's true in the Bible as well. The temples you know, had these garden areas, although we don't see that emphasized in the Bible, because in the rest of the ancient world, the temple gardens were used to provide food for the gods. That is, they were used as gifts and offerings. And of course, Israel doesn't, doesn't do that. They have sacrifices, but they don't think they're feeding the god. Mm-hmm. Um, and but palace gardens were ornamental, uh, were there uh, to show the grandeur and splendor of the king. And of course, if if we think of God in his uh, palace temple, um, we have God with a, a garden. Of course, he does. Uh, every powerful ruler in the ancient world had a had a garden with special trees, and even the imagery of the four rivers flowing from it that you mentioned. Uh, this is standard imagery in the ancient world of that the four rivers flow from the place of God's presence, and they mm-hmm. bring fertility and fecundity to the world. So these are things that uh, would have been easily recognizable to them, that would have had significant meaning to them, but it's meaning that they don't sit there and explain, because mm-hmm. everybody there knows it. This gets back to what I've talked about, that um, in the Bible, we have in our possession what is basically insider-to-insider communication. Mm. Israelites writing to Israelites. When you have insider-to-insider communication, there's a lot you don't have to explain because your audience understands it. And so there's a difference between when I talk about um, hermeneutics to a grad school class and when Mm -hmm. I talk about how you interpret your Bible to a bunch of sixth graders. Okay, suddenly that's not insider to insider anymore. I've got to explain a lot more. Yeah. And so the Bible is insider to insider, and we come to it as outsiders. We don't like to think of ourselves as outsiders. We like to think that God had us personally in mind, but that's, <laughs> that really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And yeah. so we come as outsiders, and that means there's a lot that the text doesn't explain that we need to understand because intuitively we don't understand it. So just to stay on this Genesis 1-2 garden imagery thing a little bit, your understanding is if we take an ancient Near Eastern contextual reading to the Bible as best as possible, trying to get into the author's, editor's mind frame as best as possible from what we know of the cultures, Genesis 1 and 2 clearly would have been perceived as what? Uh, the description of God's creation of a cosmic temple and inhabiting it and installing humans as his as his rulers is that what's going on there well when we read about rest when an ancient world person israelite or otherwise thought about deities resting 
they immediately assumed they were resting in a temple. That's the place made for that. And yeah. resting wasn't wasn't relaxation. It wasn't disengagement. Uh, the way I like to say it is, in the ancient world, gods didn't rest in a bed. They rested on a throne. And therefore, there's a totally different picture there than what we get. And so the garden is part of that imagery of the temple, palace, uh, garden, which is the, the property of the god. Uh, and so you have the people put there as caretakers of the garden, and that's where they would serve the god and work alongside him. To and work so, and keep the space, just, right. just like the, yeah, later in the Old Testament, where the priests were called to work and keep, same Hebrew words, the, the temple space, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, the, the people were given a task. It's an order-bringing task. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's exactly what the image of God is supposed to be. They're image of God because they've been given a task to be order bringers along with him, because that's what he does, and that's what they're supposed to do. And so, again, you, uh, our intuitive reading would never lead us to these things. No, not at all. If we could somehow interact with somebody from the ancient Near East, maybe an Israelite, somebody who's familiar with this Genesis 1 and 2, um, and we were to communicate to them kind of our traditional understanding of this passage, that it's six days of God creating the, the matter that fills the world around us. And then on the seventh day, he kind of took a nap or something. We're not always really sure what to do with that. What do you think their response to that interpretation would be? I think they'd be totally mystified. Um, <laughs> the focus on materiality would be very foreign to them. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they know that a tree is there and they can bump into it or whatever, but, but they just don't think in those terms of, they, they don't objectify those things like that. They don't objectify nature. And so this focus on materiality would seem very strange to them. Uh, the idea of it having to be a chronological sequence would be unusual to them. Again, the seven days has a significance as seven days. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is the first and the second and the third and the fourth. Uh, but that doesn't mean that chronology or sequence is at the front of their minds. I think it's rather what the seven days stands for. And again, as I've mentioned in my materials, the seven days is often used for temple inauguration. And it sure. doesn't matter yeah. what happens on each day. It matters that there are seven days and they divide up the tasks between them, or at least the focus between them. But that doesn't mean that the there's a chronological focus there. So. I think, um, and I can hardly imagine what they would think of what we do with the seventh day. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let me let me just stay on that for a little bit then. So you're you're well aware your views have sometimes in some quarters of evangelicalism been accused of trying to come up with some way for Genesis one and two to not be literal history as we conceive of literal history. And people have accused you of you're, you're trying to make some way, some some wiggle room in the text so that we can have views that are compatible with um, standard scientific theory, which would include, obviously, an ancient universe and things like evolution. They, they sometimes assign those motives to you. It's interesting hearing you discuss because it seems like you arrived at these conclusions as a slightly different route than that. But what, how do you respond to that? 
Oh, sorry. And let me add one more thing to that. One thing that I actually somewhat recently heard someone accuse you of, it, it wasn't much of an accusation. It was an observation from their point of view. And they said something like, Dr. Walton's view has not been expressed by anyone in church history until recently. And it's not even expressed amongst rabbinic Jews now. And so like, how do you respond to that? And are your views just modern flailings to try to come up with a reading of the text that is compatible with standard science? I was in the Young Earth camp uh, well into my 40s. So it's not like I was feeling some great compulsion. I find it unbelievable that people think they know my motives. They don't know me. And I've even had some of those people write to me beforehand and say, this is what I'm going to write. And I've told them, you're totally misrepresenting me. Those aren't my motives. That's not my beliefs. You're attributing ideas to me that I I have not. And they said, no, you really do believe those things. You just don't know it yet. Mm. And I find that totally disingenuous. I, I, I find it dishonest. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with me is dishonest. It's just a matter of how, how they're going about doing it. People have a right to a different opinion. And I really don't have any personal investedness in people agreeing with me. I'm sure. just trying to put out evidence that I think is important. Um, I'm not driven by some desire to make science work um, or to extend the the length of the days. I, as a matter of fact, I'm very happy with it being seven 24-hour days. My question is, what's taking place on those days? Sure. And that's where yeah. I would make a different point. The fact that church history doesn't show this only demonstrates that church history didn't have the materials by which they could come to this view. Mm. They didn't have the ancient Near East. And for the most part, they weren't even using Hebrew until the Reformation and after. Mm. And so I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, it has a lot to do with what you believe, the in, what your task as an interpreter is. Mm. And even the rabbis don't see that task the same way that Christian interpreters do or the same way that I would see it. Mm. So anyway, I generally choose not to address my critics because they're welcome to their opinion. But anybody who reads my work and realize that lots of them are misrepresenting me. But on that last point that you started to touch on a little bit, that your interpretation here has not been a standard interpretation across church history, certainly, or even maybe very popular with rabbinic you know, Jews today. Does that bother you at all or not really? No, not at all. My, my interpretation stands or falls on my evidence. I present my evidence, and if people want to disagree with it, they can try to figure out why my evidence doesn't stand. But of course, my evidence is operating within an authority framework. The way that I set up that authority framework uh, and what evidence matters. And for me, for instance, cultural evidence matters. Yeah. For lots of people who are young earth creationists, cultural evidence is distracting. It doesn't matter. What's interesting about that, and maybe this is what you're going to say, is that's what has appeared to us is that your method seems very uncontroversial. I, I've been to a couple of different seminaries. I know what evangelicals teach on not only what the Bible is, its authority, but also how to read it. Very often, they'll, they'll talk about authorial intent as being primary. We need to get to it. Yep. What I find, and I'm, maybe I'm a little curious about this, is you're just doing that <laughs> and you're taking that route to its logical conclusion, which is to really lean into cultural studies, um, cultural context to try to, again, gain the insight into the cognitive environment of the biblical author editor. Unfortunately, sometimes the conclusions then become very controversial, but it would it, it, it does seem a bit 
odd to critique your method because I'm pretty sure most evangelicals actually agree with your method. Maybe they're just not doing it consistently, or what's the deal there? Well, some people who disagree with me say, well, they they read the Bible literally. Mm-hmm. And my point is, you can't read more literally than by reading it how the author intended it. Yes. They, they seem to be thinking that I'm trying to make a metaphor out of something that was not a metaphor. And that's certainly uh-huh. not what I'm trying to do. I'm right. trying to read the text the way the author and audience would have understood it. Because I think mm-hmm. that's the way we get God's authoritative word. So if we've got listeners, watchers who have maybe interacted with some of your work, um, and they're, they're convinced that this is the proper way to go about understanding authorial intent. Um, but maybe they're sitting in Bible studies or in small groups where it's only intuitive readings of the Bible that are really being discussed or shared. What sort of advice would you give to that person? Well, I would say, uh, keep pulling it back to, do we have some good reasons to think that's what the author meant to say? Mm-hmm. You know, just asking that question, even yeah. if you don't feel like you can really get at what the author meant to say because you don't know the culture, you don't know the language. Sure. Still, if you're raising that question, that's going to be important, you know, for people to ask, what does this tell us about God instead mm-hmm. of what does this mean to me? It's a better question to yeah. say, what does this tell us about God? That mm-hmm. way, you're not asking, what does this tell us about science or what does this tell us about? You know, all the many things that my causes or whatever it might be, not what does this tell me about my theology, the way it's shaped today? What does it tell us about God? Uh, To me, some of those basic questions can put us on a very healthy path. Yeah, that's pretty helpful. Let me ask you just a, a fun question as we're wrapping up here. To summarize your views of the Bible, and we'll use Genesis 1 and 2 again, just um, because it's a, it's a very you know, hot topic of conversation amongst us evangelicals in the United States of America. If I was to summarize your view, you tell me if this is fair or not. Your view of Genesis 1 and 2, in the background of all the other views that are presented amongst us evangelicals, is maybe something like, that's not what it's talking aboutism. <laughs> Well, often I would raise that kind of issue. I would hate to define my view that way. (laughs) By stating a negative, sure. (laughs) But but you'd you'd offer what you think it is. I would raise that question. What evidence do we have that that's what the author is talking about? Mm. And if the evidence for Genesis is, well, Paul said, or, Mm. well, Augustine said, or, well, Calvin said, to me, that's not an answer, because each of those people had very important things to say, but they weren't trying to tell you what the author of Genesis was saying. Mm-hmm. We have to get that information from Genesis, not from Paul or Augustine or Calvin. So you would invite critiques to your views on not only Genesis 1 and 2, obviously, you've done a lot more besides just talking about Genesis 1 and 2 in your, in your career, but you would invite critiques to your views if they're based on, hey, Dr. Walton, we really think that a better contextual reading of this, or that this evidence would point toward the author probably thinking this, not what you said. You would be open to those critiques, would you not? Oh, absolutely. Uh, People I engage with here do those all the time. In fact, the book that I'm doing, Advances in the Lost World of Genesis, is going to have some changes based on people who have made legitimate points and argued them well and convinced me so that I've shifted things here and there. Yeah, one one thing I'd like to just say to you before we conclude is you've said this maybe once or twice in this conversation, 
this is an important concept that though we might know the right method, I, I do think that the method for reading the Bible needs to be defined. And I, I believe that in your work and others have as well, really define what that needs to be. It's not always the case that everyone has an equal opportunity to be able to do the research necessary to get to the cognitive environment of the ancient world and whatever. It's really key that we just start by recognizing that it is the case that they don't share our cognitive environment. You said something like that. I don't have the quote pulled up. I'm sorry. In your book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought, something like, it's important even if we can't retrieve the original author's meaning that we at least recognize that they don't share our cognitive environment and we start there that will at least lead us away from a lot of interpretations in in other words it'll take a lot of interpretations off the table which is einstein's or well who is it um thomas edison said you know i learned a bunch of ways how not to make a light bulb right it'll at least take a bunch of interpretations off the table that can't be sustained there's no if we can demonstrably say with confidence there's no way the author could have meant this modern debate or whatever then at least that's an interpretation off the table and we can move on to better things. I think that's important and that listeners should be encouraged that it's it's not impossible to start doing good hermeneutics. That's a good step one. And that's part of the whole issue that, you know, we all have a hermeneutic. Yeah. Most of us have never thought about how it got shaped and whether it's valid, whether it's consistent, whether it's got sufficient controls, what its objectives are, but we all have one. Mm-hmm. And it's just that most of us Unfortunately, too many of us, I should say, have an unexamined hermeneutic. Yes. Yeah. And mm. to me, that's a mic drop. You know, mm. that's just what it is. <laughs> we'll drop it there then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Quite so, welcome. The work we discussed today primarily was wisdom for faithful reading, principles and practices for Old Testament interpretation. Uh, you mentioned you've also got coming out in the near future, The Lost World of the Prophets, uh, which is also going to take some look at uh, apocalyptic literature. I'm very yep. excited about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned you've got a Daniel commentary coming out. And as you already mentioned, that the advances in the lost world of Genesis. Right. A lot of work to be looking forward to. Things on Thank the you way. so much for being with us today. Yeah, You're much appreciated. Quite welcome. Quite welcome.